Uh, hey, well, grab your Bible. Let's open it up to the book of Acts. Uh, we've jumped in and started uh, the book of Acts together uh, a couple weeks ago. We endeavored to finish chapter one uh, this morning, and we are just learning new and great and glorious things every time. We're getting challenged uh, each week by what we're learning in the book, and uh, our goal is just to uh, walk through the narrative together and to give it understanding and then to apply whatever truths that we can out of it um, uh, and uh, uh, bring it to bear on our lives and hopefully transformation happens because, because of that. Uh, you'll notice the title. I'm so proud of my title this morning, I got to say. I mean, it was just there. I mean, I wasn't going to do it. And then I was like, but we're in Seattle. I mean, we, you got to have the 12th man. I mean, it's, it's just wherever... In the Bible, will you find the 12th man as the perfect title of a, of a passage than when Messiah replaces Judas as the 12th man? And uh, uh, I actually was talking with Shay and Jonah, and uh, it came up, and I thought, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. Then later in the rest of the week, I was like, I can't do it. No, I'll lose everybody. They'll just be thinking about the Seahawks all morning. And then my boys are like, no, Dad, you have to do that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So the 12th man, here we are. We're going to talk about the 12th man as uh, we're making, a, uh, this, the, the apostles are making their final preparations before the Holy Spirit would come. And uh, we're just going to walk through, if you're right there in your Bibles, in Acts 1, we're going to look at verse 12. We're going to go all the way down uh, to verse 26 together. And uh, usually it is the practice for me to read the entire section, but this morning I'm just going to read uh, just a couple of verses together so that we have enough time and we'll walk through it all together as I, as I, as I go through it. Um, but let me just read for you just a couple of these verses in this section, and then I'll pray, and then, and then we'll jump in together. Look at Acts 1, verse 14. It says this, All these, with one accord, one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Look down also now in verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of the, these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Our Heavenly Father, we get the privilege to open up the Word of God. May we never take this time for granted to have God's Word just flopped open right there on our lap. To hear from the living God who cares so deeply about us, who wants to see us grow and mature in Christ, who desires for us to, to know Jesus better and better. And so our prayer this morning is that for the next 40 minutes or so that we're, we're here listening to the Word of God, that your Holy Spirit would teach us new things, would remind us of old, old truths, would deepen uh, these truths that we learn, uh, take them and put them deep into our hearts. And out of all of it, Lord, we want to become more like Jesus. We want transformation, not just more information. But we want to become like Christ. So help us to do that in our time of study this morning. And then in the response to having communion together. What a, what a great morning we have. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, you can see there in your Bible at the, uh, in Acts 1, there's uh, one major event that's happened. That is the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we talked last week about the importance of the ascension. You don't hear a lot of messages on the ascension of Christ. You hear every year uh, messages on the birth of Christ, and occasionally you'll sprinkle in some, uh, some uh, messages about the second coming of Christ. But rarely do you hear messages about the ascension of Christ. And last week, we were able to take our time to learn and to study the importance of the ascension. The next major event doesn't happen until uh, Acts chapter 2, and that, that major event is Pentecost. And you can see it there, maybe the hiding, the, 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 the heading of, your, of that section says the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and that is the second major event that happens. But sandwiched between these, you could say, these twin tower events is this section, verse 12 to 26. So you got these kind of two mountain-type uh, events that are happening, and then right between the two, you have verses 12 to 26, and these, these verses are important, even though they're kind of uh, between these two major events. This time between uh, 12 and 26 is, is uh, from what we can gather here, about 10 days, uh, Pentecost being the 50th day after uh, Jesus rose from the, from the grave. Uh, when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And so we have just in this moment what the apostles did between these two major events. And what they did was quite remarkable. What they did is telling for the rest of us of how to prepare ourselves to how to be a witness for God. If you remember, if you look, look with me in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, Jesus said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then it says in verse 11 that uh, the, it says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go. So Jesus has ascended into heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father even now as we speak. This is the first time the apostles are left to themselves. It's been three and a half years that, that Jesus has been pouring into these apostles. And now we get to see what their final moments were. And in this, the commitments that they make before the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Now, the, now the, they don't know how many days it's going to be before the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They just know that they are supposed to wait. And what we find here are four commitments that prepared the apostles to be witnesses for God. And this sets the outline for us for four crucial commitments to prepare you to be a witness for God. And I just want to walk through these commitments with you. The first one is this. Number one is a commitment to obedience. The apostles had a commitment to obedience. If you look right there in verse 12 and 13, it says, then, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So what you have here is you have uh, all these apostles now down to 11, right? 11 apostles who have gathered together. They are there watching Jesus ascend up into heaven, and now they are gathered, and it tells us where they, they went. It says in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem 
from the Mount called Olivet. So they're at the Mount of Mount uh, Olivet. There we watched Jesus ascend, and now they are heading back to Jerusalem. In fact, it even says there in verse 13, when they entered, they went up to the upper room. Now, many speculate that when they went back, that they actually went back to the same upper room that they had left, uh, the same upper room where Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, the same upper room where Jesus would be, would be uh, the one who would be called out by Jesus as the betrayer, uh, that same upper room. Uh, uh, however, this word for upper room that's used in the Greek is not the same word that Luke used in the book of Luke for upper room. So many people think, well, if it was that same upper room, he would have used, at least used the same Greek word for that. So many people speculate, it really doesn't matter too much if it's exactly the same upper room or not, but what we do know that is this, is that the apostles obeyed Jesus when he told them to wait in Jerusalem. Look back with me, if you would, uh, uh, in the first few verses of, of Acts chapter 1, he tells them exactly what they're to do in verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me and from John has baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is important for the apostles to obey. You got to remember, the disciples did not always obey Jesus. And now that he's gone, it is important that they would even obey Jesus even with the little things. If these men were going to be effective for the kingdom of God, if they were going to be witnesses for the kingdom of God, they needed to obey even in the first step that Jesus gives them to do. Jesus wanted them in Jerusalem. It was important that they were in Jerusalem because it would be there in Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit would come upon these apostles. And so the, 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 the first thing that the apostles do is they commit themselves to obedience to Jesus. You say, well, that's such a small thing. Well, well, well it is a small thing. It's important for us to remember that even the smallest, of, uh, the smallest of things, the even smallest of commands of Jesus are important. Every single command of Jesus is important. And the apostles wanted to obey Jesus from the very beginning, and they wanted to commit themselves to obedience from the very beginning. We think, well, that's such a small thing, but yet it's a very important thing as well. So they returned to Jerusalem. They found a room to be in. They wanted to commit themselves, first of all, to obedience. I love what Elizabeth Elliot says. It's uh, Uh, She says this, she says, does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we are not obeying in the thing that lies before us today? How many momentous events in scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of obedience? Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend upon it. You'll be shown what to do next. That, that That was the apostles. We just need to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus told us to go to Jerusalem. And we're told that the Holy Spirit's going to come. Do we know when? No, we don't know when. But let's just obey him and start there. The small act of obedience would turn into greater acts of responsibilities. And so we see, first of all, that the apostles were committed to obedience. Secondly is this. They were committed to prayer. To be an effective witness 
of Jesus Christ, you must be committed to prayer. Look at verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There's a few things in here that we need to point out. Number one is this. They were, they were unified. Secondly, they were praying. And third, they were together, not just with the apostles, but they were also with, with various women as well, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. This wasn't just a band of 11 people praying. Now this has even, even gone farther than that to, to even a, a bigger group of people who have come together to pray. And notice, first of all, what it says in verse 14, all these with one accord. That's important that we understand that. We can't just jump over that without recognizing that in this group, there was great unity that existed. This word here uh, has, to, has the idea of being united in mind, united in soul. There is unanimity, there is harmony that, that existed amongst the apostles. And listen, this word, it's important to notice this too, is that this word is not based on common personal feelings, but unanimity on a greater cause than that of the individual. Did you catch all that? This doesn't have to do with people's feelings. This has to do with the cause of Jesus Christ. In fact, they put their feelings off to the side. You say, well, what kind of feelings did they have? Well, if you go back to the Great Commission, and when Jesus was declaring the Great Commission all the way back in, Acts, in, 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 in Matthew 28, Jesus said that on that mountain, there were doubters. There was doubters among them. And that, that now having doubters in a group could, could possibly cause some little slowdown in the cause. Well, what's happening here in this word, he's saying there are one accord that all these people who had these different kinds of feelings, anxiety, uh, hesitations, maybe even those who are skeptical of even, even what was next, they put all of that to the side. Why? Because they believed in the cause of Jesus Christ. They were unified. They wanted to do something great for the Lord. They had to put aside feelings and personal feelings. They wanted to be united. This word here, with one accord, it's, it's used in other places in our Bible, even in the book of Acts, where they, where they come together. It's even uh, not just used here, but you can even see in, in, in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, when Pentecost had come, they were all together. In Acts 4 and verse 24, you have the local church there in prayer, and it says, and when, when they heard, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. In Acts 15, 25, again, we find uh, the, the believers coming together, and they're, they're in one accord together. And in this, this instance, in Acts 15, they, they come together, they have unity of mind, they have unity of purpose. They come together, and this was in, in the choosing uh, of, of, of men who would come alongside and be a part of, of the work with Barnabas and Paul, and they were, they were there, and they were in one accord in their determination of choosing who that, uh, who that man would be. We need to understand this when it talks about being of, of one accord, not only here, but in other places as the, the work of God is moving and spreading along. They were, they were unanimous. That means this, that, that there was no division. There was no backbiting. There was no criticism. 
these apostles and these believers were united around the mission. That was the most important thing to them. God has handed to us a mission. We don't have time for division. We don't have time to be critical. We don't have time to to backbite one another. And there is such power in unanimity. If you're going to launch a movement, you better have leadership that are of one mind. You can't have leadership jockeying for position. You can't have leadership saying, well, I don't think that's actually the the way we should go. We should go in a different direction. Or, or, you know what, I don't kind of like that. I, I, I feel like we need to go this way. I feel like we need to go that way. There must be unity. And so he tells us in verse 14, all these with, what does it say? One accord. Which, by the way, on a little side note, I, would, I just want to say this about the leadership here at Redemption Hill Bible Church. I'm so thankful that the elders are so unified. I mean, we truly do have an elder board that is of one mind and of one purpose and of one goal. And there's no criticism. I see Dave right here. There's Shay right here. Uh, There's no backbiting. We're not jockeying for position. We understand we don't have time for that. We have people to serve. We've got a city to reach. We've got a church to build and people to lift up in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and there's great unity there. And my, even just saying this to you guys, if you would continue to pray for that for us, as, as Satan would love to divide and he would love to divide a leadership team and continue to pray for us in that way. Secondly, you notice this, not only were they devoted, but then what does it say? They're one accord, but what does it say? Look, they're what? They're devoting themselves to prayer. They, my guess is this, you've got the apostles, Jesus just leaves, they're like, okay, what do we do? Well, there's not a whole lot we can do, but what we can do is what? We can get together and we can pray. That we can do. They weren't allowed to go anywhere. They, I mean, they were, literally, they were stuck. Guys, just wait here, how long? Uh, you'll know. Like, like a, a day, seven days, five, I, just, just wait there. And so they waited and they just wait around and sit on their hands. What did they do? They got together and they, what is that word? They devoted themselves to prayer. They, they carried on. They persevered in prayer. They were, they were earnest in prayer. They, they relied on prayer. Listen, from the very beginning, they relied on prayer. They could have easily just gone back to their jobs, and maybe, maybe they did, and then they came together and prayed. But maybe they could have just gone off and said, oh, I'll wait over here, and you wait over there. And, and somehow they found each other and were like, hey, what do we do? I'll tell you what, what we're going to do. We're going to pray because we need prayer. We depend on prayer. No movement of God is going to happen apart from prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that, that, same th- that same thing, to continually be in prayer, to, to pray without ceasing. And here you have the, the apostles lifting up a concert of prayers to the Lord. As this would be the very first thing that we, we know them to do is to come together and lay this foundation of prayer that would be uh, that which the church would come out of. They came together to pray. 
This would be the foundation or the bedrock of the church. You can see this. Let me give you just some other verses. You can jot them down for yourselves. You don't need to walk through all of them. But in, in Acts 2.42, we understand the, the church to come together and, and pray. In Acts 3.1, we see that the Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. In Acts 6.4, we find the role of, of the elders and pastors in the church is of prayer and ministry of the word. In Acts 10.4, in Acts 10.31, 12, 5, 16, 13, and Acts 16, 16. All of it has a concentration of prayer by the early church. And at every turning point, listen to this, every turning point in God's redemptive plan in the book of Acts, we find people praying. We find people praying. D.L. Moody says this, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. It's true here in the book of Acts. It was true of the Puritans in the 17th century. Pastor Shea gave me a, an illustration of the Moravian community in 1727. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Moravians. I was not until I got this uh, from Shea. The Moravian community wanted to devote themselves to prayer. And so what they did is this. They, they had sign-ups for people to pray at one-hour increments for, for 24 hours. And so they got 24 men and 24 women, and they signed up to pray for 24 hours in this community. They wanted to make a difference. They wanted to send out missionaries. They they wanted to transform the world, and so they said, we're going to start with prayer, and we're going to have somebody pray around the clock, somebody within the community around the clock. Scheduled hour of prayer, and they did this. They didn't do it just for one day. They didn't do it just for one week. They didn't do it for one year. This lasted for a hundred years. For the first 65 years of praying like this, they sent out, for 65 years, they sent out 300 missionaries. Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. The early church began with, what does it say? Devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Here's the reality, church. If you want change in your life, it begins with prayer. If you want change in your family, it begins with prayer. If you want change at work, it begins with prayer. If you want change in your schools, it begins with prayer. If you want change in your church, it begins with prayer. If you want change in your attitude, it begins with prayer. If you want change in your children, it begins with prayer. If you want a revival, a spiritual awakening, if you want empowerment, all of it begins with the foundation of prayer. And this was the commitment of the apostles. They committed themselves, devoted themselves to prayer. Now, I want you to notice this because this is important. Look at this. I've read it now a couple of times. They devoted themselves to prayer together with what? Women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice this. This would have been a great time for the apostles to start praying to Mary to get to Jesus. But it doesn't say they prayed to Mary to get to Jesus. What does it say? Very important. What does it say? Look at the text. Together what? 
with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Never did the apostles pray to Mary to get to Jesus or to God the Father. This is a problem for uh, the Roman Catholics who believe that you pray to Mary as if Mary is the exalted one, and, you, and to get to God the Father, you pray through Mary. We're here, the text is very clear to get with us that, uh, that, that it says they're, they're together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary is not a co-redemptist of the one through which men approach Christ as some would believe. Mary left a godly example for all, women, for all women, but she is no mediator between God and man. She's never been a mediator between God and man. There's only one mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, it says this, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And like I said, this would have been a great time to say, okay, Jesus is gone. Uh, well, who's next in line then? Who do we pray to? How do we pray? Well, there's the mom. There's Mary. Let's go to her to get to Jesus. They never did that. They prayed straight to God through Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and man. Let me give you another crucial commitment here that were made by the, the apostles. And that's number three is this, a commitment to Scripture. The apostles had a commitment to Scripture. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. That is, the company of persons was in, it was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during this time of the Lord Jesus went in went and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. What do we have here? Well, we have now the apostles committing themselves to obedience to Scripture. It says in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and, and there was about there, as it says, about 120 believers. We don't know how these 120 people found each other. We don't know where exactly all 120 were at, but we do know this, that somehow they found one another. And that we do know this, that's not actually very many Christians after Jesus just rose from the grave. I think oftentimes we think, man, there must have been thousands and thousands and thousands of believers when they just watched Jesus rise from the grave. And the reality is, is there's only about 120 that came together. And Peter stands up among them. Peter, Peter takes charge and he says, hey, there needs to be a leader among us. What's the first thing that we need to do? What's the first thing a leader does when he stands up amongst, uh, amongst 120 people to launch the gospel into the world? The first thing he does is he goes back to scripture. We 
must obey Scripture. I love that. Here's Peter. Here's his opportunity. Hey, I just got reinstated just 40, 40 days ago. I, 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 I got back. To Jesus, Jesus said to me to feed, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. Here's my first opportunity. How am I going to do that? I'm going to go back and I'm going to feed them. What am I going to feed them? Scripture. And what are we going to do? We're going to obey it. We're going to do what it says. We could even say this, that, that even the foundation or the bedrock of the early church then were founded on two things, devoted people to prayer and devotion to Holy Scripture. It says in verse 16, brothers, Scripture what? It had to be fulfilled. Let's make sense of what's happening is basically what he's saying. How do we understand this? Well, if we're going to understand what's happening, we need to go back to the Old Testament to figure it out. And Peter says this, it had to be fulfilled. And then he validates that the Old Testament was written by the Holy Spirit. He validates the inspired word of God. He says, which what? The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He says the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. This is very similar. If you remember what Peter wrote in 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter 1 in, in, in verse 20 and 21, he said this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is even validating that the Old Testament was written by the Holy Spirit and that it had to come true. It had to be fulfilled. And he links then this Old Testament prophecy to what was happening today, even concerning Judas. As it was prophesied in the Old Testament that there would be a betrayer, as it was prophesied in, in the Old Testament that, 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 he, that he would die, it would be prophesied in the Old Testament that there would be a replacement. And what Peter is doing, he's going back and he's starting to make sense of all of this. These things had to happen. Scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter would remember, as a, along with many of the others as well, some of the, 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 the psalms that, that talk about these things, all the way back into to Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 and Psalm 53 and Psalm 22, the messianic psalms that, that would even come to mind as Peter would, would stand up there and, and begin to, 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 to show them what, what the Bible says. It had to be fulfilled. There had to be a traitor. Judas was doing exactly what the Old Testament said he would do. This is exactly the plan of God. Someone was going to betray him. The Son of God would be betrayed. He would be removed from the apostles, 12 apostles, and there would be one who would take his place. You remember what Jesus said in his prayer in, his, in John 17? He said this, Jesus declared, I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
Pastor Stephen Cole says this. He says, the point is that the apostles were men of the word who were appealing to the word to explain the difficulty of Judas's defection and death and of the need to replace him with another credible witness. They teach us that we should go to God's word with all of the difficulties that we encounter. Thus, we can believe the testimony of the apostles because they were men whose lives had been changed through a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. They were men of obedience and men of God's word. It's interesting. I mean, if we go into to Acts chapter 2 and we find uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon them, what's the first thing Peter does? He stands up. What's the, what does he explain right when he stands up? He goes back to the Old Testament. He preaches a sermon out of the Old Testament. These were men committed to Scripture. Look what it says, verse 17, for he was numbered among us and he was allotted his share of the ministry. Such an incredible verse there. Judas was numbered among them and he was allotted his share of the ministry. Judas had a role in the ministry of of Jesus Christ. And really, it was the greatest missed opportunity by any man ever. What a missed opportunity Judas had to be among the apostles, to be among the disciples, to have such an effectiveness for Jesus Christ. And he wasted away, listen, for 30 pieces of silver. Thirty pieces of silver. You guys remember the story? They're in the garden, and Judas, with a traitor's kiss, Jesus would be exposed. The Romans would come in that moment, arrest him, and then eventually Jesus would go to the cross. You keep reading a story of what happened to Judas. Judas began to feel guilty for what he did. Judas had remorse. Judas was not repentant. Judas had remorse. And yes, remorse invokes feelings. He was never repentant. In fact, he was feeling so much guilt, so much guilt that he took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw it back at the leaders of Israel in hopes to remove the guilt upon his heart. It wasn't enough, and so the leaders of Israel, with Judas's money, went out and bought a field with it. In the eyes of the Jewish, in the eyes of the, the Israel, uh, or of, of, the, uh, of the leaders of Israel, in their eyes, this was blood money. This was Jesus' blood money. Here, this is blood money because of Judas. And either way, it's blood money. And what Judas would do then is he would, with all this guilt inside of his heart for betraying the Son of God, he would find for himself either a tree or some sort of makeshift place where he could hang himself. And he would go and he would do just that. He would, he would commit suicide right there and over this field and, and, and up high on this field. And at some point while doing this, either the whole system broke, somebody came and cut the rope, or the rope broke. And what happened is, is Judas then would fall headlong over some sharp rocks. And as it says here, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. 
you say to yourself, did we really need all that detail? I mean, why the gruesome detail? Why do we need to, to have in our Bibles that his bowels gushed out of him? Would it have been not just enough to say, hey, he committed suicide. He couldn't handle the guilt anymore. Why the picture of hitting such sharp rocks falling headlong? Patrick Shiner says this, and I love how he summarizes this. To give you the answer, I'll just let him say it. He says this, the narrative previews the fate of those who oppose Christ's kingdom. The church's mission can have fatal consequences for those who oppose its progress. Judas is a principal example of one who opposes the kingdom. The fall of Judas does not disrupt the kingdom plan, but actually was foretold. Luke assures and comforts his his readers. Nothing, not even the most wicked of actions, stand outside the reign of Christ and the plan of God. Those who oppose Jesus will fall. The loss of one disciple and the selection of another is under the sovereign hand of God. The witness of the church will move forward despite the devil's ploys. The reason why we have this in our Bible, the reason why it, it, it is said like that, that all his bowels gush out, is, is to make sure that we had a picture in our mind, forever in our mind, that no one can stop the church. Not even the most wicked and evil of traitors who tried to stop Jesus from being the Son of God. Nothing will stop the church. Nothing will stop the progress of the gospel. And those who try to stop it will be killed just like Judas. In fact, it's said exactly where he goes in verse 25. He turned aside and he what? He went to his own place. Nothing will stop the gospel. Verse 19, it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. And then Peter defends his point by saying this in, the, in Psalm 69, 25, may his camp become desolate and let there be another to dwell in it. And then this, let another take his office. We need to find a replacement. Someone to take the place of Judas So, verse 21, one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time of the Lord Jesus went in among us. He went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. And one of these men must be with us, a witness to the resurrection. So you have two things there. Who is this man going to be? Well, it has to be somebody who who was with us at the time of the Lord Jesus when he was doing all of his travels. Secondly, it had to be someone who was a witness to the resurrection. That was kind of the guide that they used to choose. It leads us to our fourth point then is this. The apostles had a commitment to the Lord's leading. They had a commitment to the Lord's leading. They set the foundation there of these two uh, descriptions of what this new apostle would be, someone who was there from the beginning of John the Baptist till the day he was taken from us. That's the ascension. And they had to be a witness to the resurrection. And then in verse 23, uh, 24, 25, and 26, we see a commitment to the Lord's leading. It says this, and they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, 
who is also called Justice. He's got three names. It's amazing. And Matthias. Justice and Matthias. Verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship, which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now notice this, before they even cast lots, what is, verse 24, what's the first thing they do, church? They're trying to make a decision. What's the first thing they do? They pray. Say, I already prayed about this. Pray again. You understand, I've been praying about it. Pray again. I'm trying to make a decision. Pray again. If you're seeking the Lord and the Lord's leading, why would they pray? Because look what it says. You, Lord, what? You know the hearts of all. You know everything. You know me better than anybody else, and I'm going to go to you, the one who knows all things, to help me in this decision. Would you show us, even says, show which one of these two you have chosen? What are they doing? They are committing themselves to the Lord's leading. We're not going to make a decision apart from the Lord leading us. And they believe this, that they, this was entirely of the Lord, entirely of his own, own choosing. Judas has gone away to a place where he belongs. He is destined for hell. So now they cast lots. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This is a practice that they would do to help discern the will of the Lord. But notice, there's a few things they did before casting of the lots. In fact, if we would do the things that the disciples did, we would make a lot better decisions in our life as well. Let me just show you what they did. Number one, they, they, the disciples obeyed. They obeyed Scripture. Number two, the disciples were in unity and fellowship. Right? They were in fellowship with other believers in the midst of, a, of making an important decision. Number three, what? The disciples were in prayer. The disciples were in Scripture looking for answers. The disciples wanted to do God's will. The disciples prayed some more. And then the disciples went ahead and, and relied entirely on God for this answer. Listen, if we would do just those things in making a decision in our life, how much better would our decision making be? If this was the, uh, what is this, seven-step process, how to make an informed decision in life, and we just went to Acts 1, and we didn't even know that this was going to be the thing this morning, but here it is, Acts 1, 12, down to 26, how to make a decision. This would be a great way to make a good decision in your life. You need to obey Jesus. You need to be in unity and fellowship with other believers. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in scriptures. You need to, to do God's will. You need to continue to pray and pray some more. And you need to depend entirely on God for a decision. Isn't that amazing? These disciples wanted nothing more than to follow the will of God. This becomes a workshop then in decision-making. And so they cast lots. What does it say? The lot fell on who? Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Back to 12. Complete, whole, 
The apostles are ready. There's 12 of them. They're set for the day of Pentecost, and they're just left now at the end of chapter 1. We're just left waiting. 120 are there in Jerusalem, preserving in prayer, one heart, one mind. They're ready for action. I believe they're kind of like at, at the start of, uh, of, a, of a horse race. You've got, you've got the horses there. They, they can't go anywhere. They're just kind of stuck running up against the gate, but they're ready to go. They're snorting. They're kicking their feet. They're ready to go, and then boom, the gate opens, and off they go. This is like the, the apostles. They're just there. They're praying. They're active. They're, they're ready to go. They're just waiting. Holy Spirit, boom, then off they go, off to the races, committed to obedience, committed to prayer, committed to Scripture, and committed to the Lord's leading. Let me pray for us, and we'll set, I'll have a time of communion. Our Heavenly Father, what a, what a great reminder for us. So many things in this passage of Scripture that maybe we didn't see the first time we read it. Things that pierce our hearts. Things that convict us. Things that encourage us. Lord, I, I'm thankful that the founders of the church, your church, the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, were those who were committed to obeying you, those who were committed and devoted to prayer, those who were committed to go back to Scripture to find answers. They didn't run off into the world to try to find answers to their, to their problems. No, they went back to Scripture and they made sense of what it said. Lord, I'm so thankful that the apostles committed themselves to the Lord's leading. Just a reminder that, that, that you are the head of the church. You are the one that goes before the church and, and leads and guides and directs us. And if we're going to be effective witnesses for you here on earth, then this is the model by which we can follow. Help us, Lord, to be men and women of prayer. Help us, Lord, to be men and women committed to your leading. Help us, Lord, to be committed to obedience and committed to the word of God, entrusting you for whatever results may come. Lord, as we turn our attention to communion now, Lord, I pray that we would celebrate your son, Jesus Christ, sacrificed for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.